This is the weekly sermon from Church of the Holy Trinity, a Reformed Episcopal parish of the Anglican Church in North America in Houston, Texas. Please join us on Sundays at 8.15 and 10.30 a.m. for Holy Communion and visit us on the web at holytrinityrec.org. Please enjoy the sermon. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, this plea to the nation of Israel from the prophet Samuel applies to us just as it applied to the Israelites. For us, returning to God with all the heart is to submit to Jesus Christ alone as our Savior, as our Lord, as King. It is to give our lives to Jesus Christ constantly. It is to give him everything. We do this by faith, through his grace. We do this through our repentance through our confession of our sins, through seeking his help and his grace consistently throughout life. The Israelites in 1 Samuel chapter 7, as we continue our series in this book for this year, were broken as a people. They were at the lowest point. They suffered, as we remember in the early chapters of 1 Samuel, through the worthless sons of Eli that lorded over them as they committed gross sins while they were priests. They suffered through giving their hopes into a thing with the Ark of the Covenant rather than faith in God before going into battle, losing thousands upon thousands in the battle and the Ark to the Philistines. They suffered at the Ark's return even as we read last week and lamented before the Lord as we read at the beginning of 1 Samuel 7. They were guilty in their rebellion. They were broken by their rebellion. They brought all of these sufferings that we have read about upon themselves. They were broken through all their attempts to do things they deemed right over the word, over the law of God. This morning, let us meditate upon the three directives that we read this morning from the prophet Samuel to Israel and their application to us in Jesus Christ. Verses 3 and 4 of this chapter fulfill, I believe, the first caveat to Samuel's statement concerning returning to the Lord with all your heart. Verse 3 places the first stipulation. Then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you. For centuries upon centuries, the period of the judges, the people oscillated between worshiping the foreign gods found in the land of Canaan the promised land now, and the worship of Almighty God. In our day, religion, if you think about it, is often relegated to tight little boxes where it has nothing to do with the rest of life. That is what our secular culture calls us to do, to disconnect our faith from our lives. So for us, it's kind of odd looking back in the Old Testament in the time of Samuel, where religion, whether it was the religion of serving the true God or pagan religion, encompassed every nook and cranny of a person's life. You couldn't get away from it. The issue with the pagan idols of the day in the terms of the land of Canaan was that they carried a whole 
bunch of immoral practices with them as part of their devotion, part of their worship. These practices within the context of these pagan religions of the Baals, the Asterisks, and so forth were practices such as homosexuality, temple prostitution, human sacrifice, and even the sacrifice of babies. The land of Canaan was so overrun by these practices when Israel was in the wilderness about to enter into the promised land that God took Moses up the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, giving him the law, the five books of the Bible. He gave these to them in preparation, preparing their hearts and minds as they would collide with these practices in these, this pagan culture. The mindset was to keep themselves unspotted from these sinful lifestyles by cleansing the land of it as they entered it. It could not be a situation where they could live side by side. For the most part, the nations they could not subdue, such as the Philistines. Eventually, in time, overwhelmed Israel, not only by military might, but also through immorality and their pagan worship practices. This is all that Samuel is addressing here, centuries and centuries behind them of these practices of the people of Israel going back and forth. This is what they were, he was telling them to put aside, to put away. It was not just the various images and altars they erected and maintained that needed to be taken down, but also the heinous immoral practices associated with them. Verse 4 conveys the fact that Israel, as we read, complied. They put away these things. The second aspect of turning fully to God after putting away the things that kept their hearts from God is what we read next. He said, direct your heart to the Lord. Direct your heart to the Lord. We find the marker of this change of heart of Israel in verses 5 through 8 of today's lesson. Verse 5 begins the first part of this direction. Then Samuel said, gather all. All Israel, all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. Think about it in our lives of faith, submitting to God's work within us, we follow the same path week after week. The act of faith, the act of confession, of repentance is to put away our modern day idols anew. Then true contrition and penitence involves more than just whispering a prayer. It involves the action, the direction of heart that leads our body. We could look at this call of Samuel for the first step in directing their hearts to gather at a place where he would pray for them as key. We as Christians are given since the beginning of the church at Pentecost, the church, the body of Jesus Christ, where we are called to gather on the first day of the week to be renewed in Jesus Christ, renewed in his resurrection, to apply what he has accomplished for all of us to ourselves, to cling to him, to hear our spiritual pastors pray for us on our behalf, to pray for one another. The act of coming to a place in repentance is key. It is easy in our society to think that we can take shortcuts, that just a whispered prayer in the golf course is enough, that we do not need to gather. In time, the shortcut mentality leads us right back to the vomit of our idolatries, thinking that a whispered prayer will suffice, yet they do not suffice because of the root of the spiritual shortcut 
is rebellion of doing what's right in my eyes. Gathering is key for the Christian. Gathering is key to love. Gathering is key in directing the heart to Jesus Christ because it is an act of obedience. Verse 6 speaks of the next step in their direction of heart to God. So they gathered, they obeyed, they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. When we meet, every time we meet as Christians, every time we meet in our worship service, we deal with our sin. We repent, we confess, we hear that we have been forgiven. The idea of the people of God gathering on God's day is not a social function as in the secular world. Yes, often we treat such as we do in the secular world, keeping our conversations surface level only. Yet the call in our gathering on the Lord's day is to pray, is to repent, is to worship, to, re to come together in love, to come together around his table. Think about the implications of this for us. Our conversations on the Lord's day is gathered both in our worship and in our fellowship should be open to one another to pray, to personally repent to one another where we need to repent, to personally forgive each other where we need to forgive, and to apply all of this on the Lord's day by remaining together, by coming back together week after week. Verses 7 and 8 contain, contain an immediate test to the Israelites' faithfulness. Even in the midst of their gathering, obedience, repenting, fasting, in this worship, Verse 7 states, Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. It's the same people that had just defeated them months earlier, killed thousands of their people. I believe a deep spiritual connection and application can be made here to our own day and age. The body of Christ is most powerful in Jesus Christ when she is in connection with each other through worship, through a faithful participation around the Lord's table to answer the call to come and celebrate the resurrection on the Lord's day. In other words, to the secular world, to the pagan world around us, nothing brings more fear into the hearts of the opponents of Christ than when his people gather, when his people gather to worship here the Philistines saw the gathering of Israel as a threat and they addressed it to go to war. The more committed we are to serve Jesus through obedience and deep love of each other to worship when we are able, the more of a threat we pose to the world, the flesh, and the devil. This is why the enemies of the cross want us to believe the lies that we can take spiritual shortcuts. They tempt us to reject repentance. They tempt us to reject gathering as the body of Christ. For ancient Israel, this meant practicing the pagan religions around them along with their immoral practices. This meant they were no longer a threat, but rather they became slaves of those around them, slaves to sin. Same is true for us in Christ. If we bow to the pressures of our culture and its pagan deities that seek to keep us from worshiping God with God's people, 
then we're acting like conquered slaves to whatever keeps us away on the Lord's day and other days. Whatever it may be in our culture of immorality, of addictions, of entertainment, and various activities. Anything in our culture that keeps us away from Jesus Christ and his church can become a spiritual shortcut, can become an idol. When we succumb to such, we will not meet resistance, for we are acting just like the pagans. We are right where they want us to be. Verse 8 provides the faithful answer that only God's grace and clinging to his grace can bring. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Notice their tune changed from the previous chapters, eight months before or so, where they sought to manipulate God and the situation by bringing the Ark of the Covenant into play as a weapon rather than faithfulness to God. As we read a few chapters ago, they failed. See, the point is that if we are returning to the Lord and have put away our idols and have directed our hearts to Jesus by gathering, by repenting, by coming to his feast, we will collide with the world, the flesh, and the devil. The point is how do we respond? For the disciples in reading the, books of, the book of Acts right after Pentecost, life did not become full of roses. No, in their obedient love to God and to each other, they collided with this selfish, sinful world. The world does not want us to direct our hearts to Jesus Christ. The world wants us, at the least, for our hearts to be divided, to dabble in its idols. In such, we again cease being a threat because we have already caved in. Total turning of heart through the action of coming, through the action of repenting, through the action of hearing that our sins are forgiven, through the action of kneeling around the Lord's table, tells this sinful world that as for our house, we will return to the Lord our God to be fed by him, to be sustained by him, to be prepared to go back into the world to preach the gospel. Even facing the various dangers and temptations we all face when we go into this world, the consistency of coming back to him, asking the Lord for help as Israel did in the face of the Philistines is key. The Philistines, just as our enemies, would be just as content when we saw their threat to disband, for us to scatter, to go back to being meaningless. The call of returning to God and directing our hearts to him implies staying in connection to Christ to face this world, not alone, but in him, together as his church. At Pentecost, many in the crowd from around the known world heard St. Peter preaching to them, as Acts chapter 2 relates. And the reaction of the crowd was the point that they were cut to the heart. They were ready to direct their hearts to God. Then they asked Peter what they should do in response. He told them to repent, to be baptized into Jesus Christ, symbolizing the point that they were turning from service to this world to service to Christ by dying to self, by being raised up in Christ. The same is true of us and ongoing battling all that we battle with the temptations of this world continually reminded and applying what Jesus did for us so that we 
can leave this building after being refreshed by his words and his sacrament to be light in this dark world rather than another clump of darkness. The last part of this chapter, verses 9 through 17, speaks of Israel applying the last stipulation of returning to God with the whole heart, where Samuel said, Serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. In gathering to worship and repentance, Israel immediately faced this collision with the world. Instead of leaning on self or leaning on other things, Israel asked Samuel, to cry out to the Lord for them. As we read in verse 9, So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. Just as in the days of Moses, where he interceded repeatedly on behalf of the wayward people, Samuel here stood for the people to cry out to the Lord. And God heard. The next verses record the fact that as Samuel offered these prayers and this sacrifice, the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. Yes, the enemies of God and his people arose in opposition to the people's gathering in worship and sacrifice and obedience. In their loving obedience, God delivered them by his hand leaving no doubt to Israel that he was their redeemer. We are called to the same in our gathering. When the storm clouds of this wicked world gather to tempt us from God, the call for all of us is not to scatter. The call is not to shy away from our gathering, from our worship. The call, rather, is to gather together in his worship, to cry out to the Lord, to rely firmly on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that atones fully for our sins eternally to rely firmly as he stands for us, to cry out in his dying words upon the cross that crushed all opposition, all our enemies for all eternity. It is finished. Many of the prophets stood for the people throughout the Old Testament to cry out to God on behalf of his people, and the Lord delivered them temporally. These all foreshadowed what our perfect prophet, priest, and king would do to our enemies, not temporarily, but eternally. Yes, we face the temporal issues of our lives, of temptations. Yet all these are meant for our sanctification, for our continuing growth in Christ, preparing us for his second return in glory, being made his servants slowly and surely every day through the act of coming back to his loving sacrifice constantly, world without end. The model of leadership in Holy Scripture that we see in Samuel and ultimately in Jesus Christ is not the pagan idolatrous model. The pagan model is that of the dictator demanding respect and obedience while thinking it's all right to trample on others. Such is not leadership, but rather a tyranny. The mark of an ungodly leader, as opposed to Samuel, is that, is that service is not part of the equation, but rather making others serve their needs. The model exhibited by the prophet Samuel throughout his life mirrors what we see all the other godly, humble leaders doing throughout God's word, leading through service. Ultimately, Jesus was perfect in this and continues to be 
our servant, our suffering servant, our servant king. Samuel served, as we read throughout this book, by offering worship and sacrifice and prayers before battles, showing humility and placing himself at the service of the Lord in such dangerous times. Samuel served, as we read, by crying out to the Lord in prayer, standing for his people, standing for them, crying on their behalf. He served as a judge of Israel, actually the last judge of Israel, traveling to key cities on a rotation every year, serving as a judge at his home even, setting up an altar there. His life became service to the people of God, to God, calling them continually to repentance, leading them to faithfulness through the application of God's word to their lives, through judging their lives all the days of his life. The servant leader must submit to the small things, just as Samuel did. Nothing was below him. He must be willing to serve in the mundane, the small details many of us overlook. We saw the heart set of such an approach in Samuel and today in our lesson in 1 Corinthians 13. In a loving service that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things, servant leaders see no task is beneath them. If leaders are not willing to do such, to get their hands dirty just as Samuel, just as our Lord, they are not servant leaders. Servant leadership is sacrificial and is what we see in the work of our Savior. In service, we learn what it means to love God, to love neighbor. In Christ, we come to know his sacrificial love on a personal level through our connections, through our gathering as we gather right now in worship. Sacrificial leadership is to daily put away everything that keeps us from God and love of one another. 